Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Food School Smarter, Stronger, Leaner podcast. Today is Sunday. Happy Sunday, everyone. And I'm super pumped and excited to release this episode on Sunday for you to fully enjoy and dig deeper into details because this episode, well, we have a guest on this episode and we are going really deep into the practical science of nutrition. We're going to talk a lot about vitamins and minerals with my guest, who I'm about to announce. (laughs) Uh, But um, most importantly, we're going to talk a lot about how you can, through your daily practice of eating, how you can maximize nutrition and improve your health, increase your energy levels, um, have more years of productive life and improve and increase your daily performance mentally and physically. We're going to talk about all of that and more with my guest today, Chris Masterjohn. So Chris has a PhD in nutritional science sciences that he got from the University of Connecticut in 2012. From September of 2012 to August 2014, he served as a postdoctoral research associate in the Comparative Biosciences Department of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. From August 2014 to December 2016, he served as an assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College part of the City University of New York. In the fall of 2016, he made his decision to leave academia and pursue entrepreneurship, a transition he completed on January 1st, 2017. And as of January 2017, he's on his own, currently conducting independent research, consulting, working on information products, collaborating on information technology products, and producing tons and tons of content to help people like you guys gain better health. And I've been following Chris for a while, guys. And uh, also, uh, it seems like no matter what you know, podcast or YouTube video or something else I'm researching, no matter what I hear or um, see mention of Chris working one way, in one form or the other. He did a lot, a lot of research, in-depth research on different vitamins and minerals and nutrients and how they affect our health and how they work in our body and how we can reap benefits of getting more of those vitamins and minerals in the right Forum. So, uh, a lot of fascinating work um, Chris has done. Today on this podcast, we are talking about foundational but simple rules of healthy eating to help you build your own nutritious meal plan. We're going to talk about how to maximize nutrition and prevent health problems without complicated meal plans and tracking everything and anything. <laughs> Uh, We're also going to talk about why you should think twice before eliminating a food group from your diet. Might have serious consequences, guys. 
We're going to talk about possible nutrient deficiencies on vegan, paleo, low-carb diets and other diets. We're going to talk about your best supplementation strategy, best supplements to consider, and why food, real whole food, is still your best bet when it comes to getting all your vitals and (laughs) essential vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients. We're going to talk about, of course, Chris' personal story about his diet, nutrition, journey, health journey, and how going vegan almost drove him crazy, drove him crazy. Um, so we're going to talk about Chris' own nutrition strategy, meal planning, what he eats, how he eats, why he eats that, uh, what he supplements with, and why. And also, we're going to talk about other subjects, like why cavemen might have been as smart as about his nutrition and how we are not really. And more fascinating stories and facts and in-depth nutrition information on today's episode of Food School podcast. So stay tuned, guys. Enjoy. And as usual, eat better daily. Thank you, Chris, for um, joining me today for this episode of Food School Podcast. I really appreciate your time and the value that I'm sure you're going to bring to all of the listeners uh, with your deep knowledge of nutrition and i'm sure it's going to help people to advance their health to improve their health to add healthy years to their life and increase their mental and physical performance Uh, i was really excited uh, about talking with you because everywhere i i would listen to some nutrition podcast or watch some video i would hear about you or your research or some mention of Uh, the work you do. So thank you and welcome to Food School Podcast. Thank Thank you you so so much much for having me. It's great to be be here. here. Um, So Chris, to start our conversation, uh, I'd like to read something that I found on your website in your um, About Me section, something that I believe will help our listeners to learn more of your story and um, how you got into nutrition and health in the first place. So the sentence is this one. I have deep and personal experiences with the power of food, movement, and mindfulness to support health and well-being. So I'm curious, personally, what were those deep and personal experiences with food, movement, and mindfulness that might have shaped where you are right now and the work you do. Yeah. Um, well, I'll be honest, really, they come in that order. The, the food, um, the food really was the overwhelming shaper of my experience. And that's the story that goes back to when I was a teenager. I saw, I saw my mom in pain every night. Uh, when I was a teenager and living with her, I often lost nights of sleep because she was in so much pain. She had fibromyalgia and I watched her go through a health journey that led her through macrobiotic diets, yoga, tai chi, herbalism, all kinds of things like that. I don't know what was the secret ingredient or, or what combination really did the trick, but I saw her completely transform into a largely pain-free life and that inspired me to get very interested in devouring all the information I could about 
health and nutrition. And that led me down the path that led me into trouble before it really got me to where I am today. And that was when I decided to go vegan. And when I decided to go vegan, I thought that I would be saving the world from ecological disaster, that I would be saving the animals from suffering, that I'd be saving my own health. Uh, preventing myself from ever getting osteoporosis and heart disease and cancer and all the diseases that afflict us in the modern era. Uh, what I found instead was that I had a severe aggra aggravation of anxiety disorders that had existed since my teenage years, but never really been more than a nuisance to me in those times. I saw those just get worse and worse and worse to the point where I was really losing my ability to carry out a functional life. And my teeth fell apart. I had always, as a child, been vulnerable to tooth decay. But during this period of veganism, I had more tooth decay than I had ever experienced in my life. I, in a single sitting, I went to the dentist and found that I needed over a dozen, or over a dozen fillings and two root canals. And so at this point, I'm really primed to understand how to take care of my teeth better. And my boss at the time gave me a pamphlet that discussed the work of Weston Price. Weston Price was a dental researcher turned nutritional anthropologist. And this pamphlet talked about how he had discovered the way to keep your teeth immune to tooth decay. And so I thought, immunity to tooth decay, I really want in on that. And so I read Weston Price's book, and he really focused on his research showing that during the 1920s and 30s into the early – well, mostly the 1920s and 30s, as populations all over the world were starting to receive shipments in of white flour, white sugar, white rice, syrups, and canned goods, the foods that Price called the displacing foods of modern commerce – uh, whether they were in Asia or Africa or Europe or whatever, um, they were on some traditional diet that was unique to their region. But as they would replace their traditional diet with these displacing foods of modern commerce, their teeth would fall apart. But so would the rest of their mental and physical health. And I think that part of his conclusions is not that surprising to us today because even though 60% of the American diet is white flour and in other countries uh, that are similarly modernized from us, it's pretty similar. And even though white sugar intake is very high, intake of high fructose corn syrup is very high, uh, most people who become health conscious, whether they go paleo or they go vegan or they go keto or they go whatever, um, they all cut out white flour and white sugar. That's sort of like the most basic thing that anyone does to be more health conscious. And so it's not that surprising to look back on Price's work and say, wow, these people's health was falling apart when they were eating mostly white flour and white sugar. What I think is what was really surprising to me at the time and remains very compelling is that is what Price said about the diets that were keeping them healthy before they encountered the white flour and white sugar. And what Price put a lot of emphasis on was that all these groups ate nutrient-dense animal foods like egg yolks, organ meats, full-fat dairy products, fish, shellfish, insects, small animals like frogs, that they ate the whole animal, they ate the organs, they ate the bones. 
And I looked at this and I thought, number one, as a vegan, I never really appreciated that animal foods were nutrient dense. I just thought of animal foods as something you got your protein from. And I thought from the vegan literature, well, we don't need as much protein as everyone says we do, so we don't need to eat animal foods. But here's Price saying that there's essential vitamins and minerals that we need to get from these animal foods. But then the second thing was a lot of these foods, like shellfish and organ meats, were foods that I wasn't eating even when I was an omnivore. Uh, most of my friends who were not vegans were not eating any organ meats and weren't eating that much shellfish. And so when I eventually, when I started adopting the principles of Weston Price's dietary findings, I was not, uh, I was not just going back to being the omnivore I had been. I was really taking my diet to the next level of nutrient density through nutrient-dense animal foods that I hadn't been eating before. And although I was trying to solve my tooth decay, and I did, the real turning point for me was when I saw the anxiety disorders that had been absolutely crippling just disappear. And I remember the turning point, into uh, the experiential turning point for me was I was in the dining hall where I worked, saw this guy pick up a stack of plates and take one plate from the middle of the stack and put the stack of plates back on top. And I thought, I judged him in my mind. I thought, why doesn't he just take the one on top? I think this guy's really weird. And I start walking away, and a few seconds later, I suddenly realized that a few months before that moment, I had always done that every time I took a plate. And I did, and that was the least weird thing out of the things that I would do. I would spend 20 minutes looking for a glass that was clean enough for me to drink out of from among all the clean glasses. But there were, there were times where I was afraid to eat anything in my house because I was afraid it was drugged or poisoned. Times where I'd examine the wrapper of my veggie burger looking for evidence of tampering and just examine it to death until I created what I saw as the evidence of tampering after I examined it so much that I poked a hole in it. And then I would be afraid that it was drugged or poisoned. And then I would be afraid I wouldn't be, I wouldn't know whether the problem was with the food or myself. I'd throw the food, the veggie burger across the room in anger and frustration. Right. And so this was a few months before that moment. And here I am not just not having those problems, but actually being confused at how foreign it was for this guy to not take the plate on the top of the stack, something that is like the most mild example of being afraid of something food-related that that you could think of. Um, yeah, I couldn't even figure out at first why what was wrong with the plate. <laughs> Either way, well, I mean, you know, if you're if you're kind of a germaphobe, then the plate on the top is the one that has all the dust and germs and stuff falling on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now um, I get the, it. The, yeah. Or, you know, or to, or to, to, be, to take it to a much worse level, if you're afraid that uh, someone's going around, like, putting evil stuff on the plates, they're probably not going to get the one in the middle. They're probably going to get the one on top, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so I mean, so the, 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 that's, the, that's the mildly neurotic uh, interpretation of that and then the borderline psychotic interpretation of that. Um, but anyway, it was sort of just shocking to find myself being completely healed, not just to the point where I didn't do those behaviors, but to the point where I didn't understand those behaviors anymore. Those behaviors were 
were mild, ex- extremely mild examples of the behaviors that I was engaging in three months before that. And they seemed completely foreign to me at that time. And so that was when I realized, I mean, that moment is directly every, when you said, what are these examples of profound experiences with food? Like the food part traces to that moment is, is the, is the formative moment um, where I really truly realized the power of nutrition um, you know, to, to see nutrition heal chronic pain is one thing, but to see nutrition healed, heal a profoundly defective mind to the point of completely regenerating it as a healthy mind, I think is a whole different level of appreciation of the, of the profound power of nutrition. Um, you know, but when you have a profound experience like that, it's very easy to take that experience and interpret everything through the lens of it. So to see nutrition as so powerful, you then can go on to think that everything is about nutrition. Why? Because nutrition is that powerful. And so if it's powerful enough to heal your mind, then it must be powerful enough to heal everyone else's mind, no matter what their problem is. And it must be powerful enough to heal everyone's physical ailments because uh, if it can heal one and it can heal the other, then why can't it heal everything, right? Um, but the reality is that nutrition was so powerful for me at that time because nutrition was my – that was my weakest link. Link, And to be a whole person requires you to eat good food but also requires you to have a healthy lifestyle. It also requires you to have a healthy mindset. It also requires you to have healthy movements in the way that – well, not just the way that you move, the way that you don't move when you're when you're sitting down or standing or resting in some other position. And so as I as t- you know, as time went on, I started to accumulate other experiences, whether through my own journey or just by working with clients and speaking with friends and seeing how these things impact other people. But, you know, as a few examples, uh, I went to graduate school to follow up on turning what I'd learned about nutrition into a professional career. And in grad school, I engaged in a lot of sleep deprivation that hurt my health a lot. And realizing the power of sleep and the fact that nutrition can't compensate for bad sleep is something that I learned there. Um, I went on into academia to be trapped in really, really overworking in ways that I realized I had to fix certain things about the way that I thought and the way that I approached negotiating the terms of my life in order to be able to create a lifestyle that was balanced and wasn't just about me working all the time. Um, So it's not just healthy sleep. It's being able to set the terms around how much sleep you get and not to be a victim of just what other demands people are placing on you. Because if you're only a victim of the demands that other people are placing on you, no one's going to look out for your sleep or for your well-being the way the way that you will if you're conscious of it. Um, and also, you know, I do I do primarily intellectual work. And so it's very tempting to just sit down in a chair and stare at the computer all day long. And 
I have a lot of muscle muscle tension and problems from not being not not diversifying my movement enough. That's really helped me appreciate that. And I get a lot of mileage just out of diversifying the ways the positions that I work in. And so you know, I think having a movement practice is important. And I think not sitting in a chair is important, but Actually, one of the things that I've learned is that you really can't compensate for staying in one position all day long by spending three hours a week in the gym. And you really, like, even with things like standing desks, I think alternating between standing and sitting is a lot better than just sitting or just standing. But what I've ultimately come to work in is just a diversity of positions that include uh, sitting cross-legged or in a half lotus position or in a lunge position or in a kneeling position or in a squatting position or in a sitting position or in a standing position or on a treadmill. And I think keeping yourself in different positions at rest and moving a lot in light ways all day long is really critical to having basic relief from anxiety and muscle tension um, and having a healthy posture and movement pattern. So, you know, over time I've realized that nutrition is not the be all and end all. Uh, all these other components are important, but nutrition is certainly one of the big, one of the big major movers. Yeah. What a journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, through personal experience, uh, that shaped, um, a lot of your thinking, um, Good. Some some experiences are positive, some negative, but they shaped your life, uh, and you made the. It seems like the, you know, you you made the most of it and learned uh, a lot of lessons that um, that are still helping you to be the healthiest and um, I don't know, most successful version of yourself. You know, um, on the point of movement, uh, I don't know if you read this book. Uh, it's called. Um, Move Your DNA. Um, I forgot the author, but um, she's... Um, I've, heard, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically about how different movements are the signals to our cells, uh, cell membranes that communicate, well, that communicate certain message to our DNA to, um, to change in a certain way so if you basically move differently you change your dna more in a mechanical way not so much in a chemical way because you um just press different parts of the cell membrane uh and so i thought that was really fascinating concept and yeah i i try to incorporate um different styles of movements you know in my workouts and in my day and i find it um really great for health like uh, i always feel like i'm in some sort of imbalance if i stick to just one set of movements like just weight training or just yoga or something else so i believe you know like um in nutrition variety in movement is the key like variety in everything Mm. um and um so Thank you for sharing these parts of your journey. Uh, it's it's a fascinating journey and story. And, uh, you've learned so many things. And, you know, another thing probably that really resonated with me is how nutrition can really change your personality. 
and the person you are and how you um, show up in the world. For I, I know that from my personal experience, I also was raw vegan and uh, I was on all sorts of diet. And I can look back and see how my personality changed because of what I ate. Mm. Um, so also a very fascinating concept for me that you can literally change who you are by just changing what you eat. Um, and getting back to the topic of nutrition and nutrients, and, um, you know, this is the topic that you probably most known for, uh, what do you believe, you know, you've learned so much from, uh, Western Price work, and I'm sure from works of so many others and through your own work, you've learned a lot about those, you know, what I like to call them life essential nutrients uh, that we people, human beings need to support our optimal health and performance. Like what, what did you learn specifically are the most important nutrients like vitamins, minerals, or some other nutrients that we people need on regular basis and tend to have negative consequences, health consequences, if we don't get them through our diet. All of the essential nutrients are important. So there are essential vitamins and there are essential minerals. There are essential vitamins like vitamin B1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 9, and 12. There are uh, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, D, E, and K, the fat-soluble vitamins, and there's a bunch of important minerals, magnesium, copper, selenium, iron, and on and on. Um, so I think the best way to think about this is really, you know, you, you mentioned diversification uh, when uh, in food and in movement. And I think diversification is a really important principle that actually should be the foundation of how you think about getting your essential nutrients. And this really is, you know, this principle is that people talk about it all the time when they're talking about finances, where like if you're going to invest in, uh, you know, save your money and invest, um, you should have a diversified portfolio. And in fact, it's better to just put your money in a retirement account and have someone else diversify the portfolio. But if you decide, oh, I'm going to buy individual stocks or I'm going to put all my money in real estate or something like that then uh, you need to micromanage really hardcore and start becoming an expert in whatever those markets you're investing in because all of a sudden you are at tremendous risk of not, you know, of missing out on certain important things um, that, you know, missing out on certain investments that would grow more than whatever you invested in or losing all your money in certain investments. And you can think about food in exactly the same way. So there are different types of foods that have different nutritional profiles and have also have different um, toxic profiles. So everything that we eat has essential nutrients and has substances that are problematic for us that our body has to invest energy into not absorbing and to, if we do absorb it, detoxifying. And that is a burden and a potential risk. And so by diversifying your foods, you are far more likely to get all the different positive nutrients without having to think too much about it. And you're also less likely to accumulate any one toxic compound beyond your capacity to handle it. And so the, the way that I would set up some simple rules around that is, number one, 
diversify your protein among meat, fish, shellfish, or other invertebrates like snails and insects, um, eggs, and dairy. And so right there, you have a certain protein allotment. And those, dip, you know, when you're eating red meat versus fish versus oysters versus um, versus chicken eggs versus cow milk, each one of those is giving you a very different profile of vitamins and minerals. And if you meet your protein requirement with a mix of them, you're going to uh, you're going to derive the benefit of each unique nutritional profile. Then I would say a second rule would be make an effort to eat nose to tail by utilizing parts of the animals that we've tended to neglect in our society. So traditional societies ate the whole animal. If you, if you kill the cow, you eat the bones of the cow, you eat the organs of the cow. And we don't, you know, in our society, we don't use, most of us don't kill cows. And so we're not really in contact with what it means uh, we don't really appreciate what it means for the whole animal because there's so many parts that we don't see. But a good way to start eating nose to tail is to work in liver into your diet once or twice a week and to start utilizing bones through – if you cook a lot, you could use bones through uh, making uh, bone stock that you can turn into broth or for soups or to gravy or to the base for sauces if you don't cook a lot, you can buy packaged bone broth or you could supplement with hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin to get some of the main uh, protein components of that bone broth. And then a third rule I would say would be to get some, to get some uh, two to three servings per day of calcium-rich foods. And I, I, I single out calcium because – when I'm develop when I developed these basic rules, I was developing them to try to come up with simple ways to make sure that all that all your nutrient needs would be covered. But calcium is so narrowly distributed in the food supply that if you don't really single out calcium to get enough, and you're not getting it through multivitamins or calcium supplements, then it's really really easy to not get enough. So those calcium-rich foods would be dairy products, with the exception of butter because it only has the fat, and then and edible bones. Those would be the top two. But then there are also um, there are also a handful of green vegetables that are very good sources of calcium. So I actually made let me see I made a list of those. So let me pull that list up. Um, the most practical plant food to get calcium from is Chinese mustard greens. And you can like a little over two thirds of a cup of them is equal to um, is equal to a serving of milk. And then close behind that is Napa cabbage, where a serving of milk would equal three quarters of a cup. Um, and then just after that is bok choy, where a serving of milk is equal to a little over a cup. Pretty much any other green vegetables are you're just going to have to eat way too much of it to, to really get your calcium requirement from that. And then I would add a, a, a three three more rules to this. So rule number four would be to diversify your carbohydrates among legumes, whole grains, starchy tubers, and fruits. If you don't tolerate grains, that's okay. You could just diversify among legumes, starchy tubers, and fruits. Uh, but the more you more the more you pull out of there the more you need to start micromanaging your diet. For example, some people don't eat legumes or grains or starchy tubers or fruits. 
And in that case, it's not that you can't get your nutrients in, it's that you really have to be more conscious of what you might be missing from those foods to make efforts to replace them. And then the last major rule of the five would be eat a large volume meaning several cups per day of vegetables, diversifying them across colors with an emphasis on red, orange, yellow, and green, and always including dark green vegetables in the daily mix. And then the final rule is sort of like a bonus rule to add to the five, which is you really need to make sure your digestion is in tip-top shape. And so including things like ginger or lacto-fermented foods or, um, or bitters in all of your meals as a way to stimulate your digestion is a really great way to ensure that you're actually utilizing the nutrients in those foods. Uh, what about uh, probiotic-rich foods, like, for example, sauerkraut or, or any kinds of... Yeah, that goes in the lact... So, sour- mm-hmm. I said lacto-fermented foods, and if okay. you're thinking of probiotic foods, most of those are going to be lacto-fermented. Mm-hmm. Lacto means fermented with lactic acid bacteria, which is one of the probiotic bacterias. So uh, sauerkraut, kombucha, raw apple cider vinegar, uh, kimchi, are, those are all examples of lacto-fermented foods. Cool. These are really great rules for people to start planning their meals properly to uh, include as much um, variety as possible to get as many nutrients as possible. Um, on, the ta- on the subject of uh, nutrients, what nutrients do you think people tend to miss out the most in their diets? And maybe um, a lot of people you know of or you worked with, uh, like they just seem to not get those nutrients and they might think about different foods, different ways to include um, more, to specifically design their meals to get more of those nutrients. Yeah, I... I um... I don't think that it, you can make umbrella statements about anyone. So if you look at uh, if you look at national health policy and what they list as underconsumed nutrients, they're vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, folate, vitamin C, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and fiber. And iron is considered an underconsumed nutrient for adolescent and premenopausal women. But if you take, um, you know, especially for populations that listen to health podcasts, people are, are in, a, in some other population where their fundamental risks are going to be different. So, for example, if you're looking at a vegan community, then there are definitely – I mean, yeah, you can have a vegan that just eats junk food, but a a health-conscious vegan is not going to be deficient in vitamin C. A health-conscious vegan is very unlikely to be deficient in folate. A health-conscious vegan is probably not going to, almost certainly not going to be deficient in magnesium, potassium, and fiber, whereas a health-conscious vegan could very easily be deficient in vitamins A and D. Um, because the major sources of those nutrients are animal foods. In the case of vitamin A, it's a little complicated because red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables all have carotenoids, which are the plant form of vitamin A, but only animal foods, especially liver and cod liver oil, uh, and to a lesser extent, egg yolks and dairy, um, only animal foods have retinol, which is the animal form of vitamin A, and we need retinol in our bodies to prevent vitamin A deficiency. 
carotenoids from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables are just considered the plant form of vitamin A because we can turn them into retinol. But some people, either because of genetics or because of hormone reasons or digestive problems or deficiencies of other nutrients, are just not likely to um, be good converters of the plant form into the animal form. And so a vegan... If they are a bad converter of carotenoids to retinol, even a health-conscious vegan is probably going to be deficient in vitamin A. The health-conscious vegan has a very high likelihood of being deficient in zinc because oysters, beef, and cheese are the best uh, sources of zinc and because um, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes are the most important sources, sources of phytate, which is the key inhibitor of zinc absorption. So to get good zinc status, you want to eat a high animal to plant ratio and you want to have a lot of oysters, beef and cheese in your diet. If you consume the opposite diet, which is a vegan diet, you're a lot more likely to be deficient in zinc. A vegan is going to be at much higher risk of riboflavin deficiency, which is vitamin B2. If you look at the the rate of riboflavin deficiency in omnivores versus vegetarians, it's like 10% omnivores, 30% vegans and vegetarians. That's a threefold increase in the risk of riboflavin deficiency and it, and vitamin B12 deficiency as well. So among omnivores, uh, the rate of B12 deficiency depends on age. If you if you look at um, if you look at young omnivores, it's pretty rare. But if you look at omnivores who are over the age of 65, it's like 15% of the population is deficient in vitamin B12. But if you look at vegetarians and vegans at any age, you're looking at 70%, over 70% of vegetarians, over 90% of vegans are deficient in B12. Um, so, you know, that's one set of vulnerabilities. But if you look at a different population like paleo, you're going to find a completely different set of nutrients that are most likely to be problematic. So the paleo person is very unlikely to be deficient in B12 unless they have digestive disorders. If that paleo person is eating organ meats and red meat, that paleo person is not going to be deficient in riboflavin like the vegans are. That paleo person is not going to be deficient in zinc like the vegans are unless they have diarrhea or digestive problems that are preventing them from absorbing the zinc in their food. Um, but they're not going to be zinc deficient because of their diet. And, um, you know, <coughs> on the other hand, Depending on their definition of paleo, uh, they they may well if they, if they're not eating organ meats, they might be deficient in vitamin A. Um, if they're they're you know paleo people usually eat a lot of fruit of vegetables. They might eat fruits, but if they have a lot of fresh vegetables. They're probably getting enough vitamin C. Um, they're probably getting enough fiber because usually paleo people cut out lower fiber refined grains and add in fiber rich vegetables. But a lot of paleo people, because they don't eat dairy, are deficient in calcium, which is one of the nutrients of concern as under-consumed in the general population. And actually, for that matter, vegans are often deficient in calcium for the same reason. Um, paleo people often have uh, high needs for the mineral molybdenum, which is needed to protect other B vitamins and to prevent you from accumulating sulfite, which can cause symptoms that seem a lot like allergies and be, and it be, the high amount of meat in a paleo diet increases your need for molybdenum but the main food that you get molybdenum from is legumes paleo folks don't eat legumes 
uh, for the most part, depending on their definition of paleo. So a lot of meat and no legumes is a recipe for not getting enough molybdenum. Um, you know, not eating legumes is a huge risk factor for not getting enough folate. You may well be getting enough folate from a lot of leafy greens, but not eating legumes makes it harder. If you take someone, you know, on keto, you're going to get a different uh, profile of nutrients of concern. If you take someone on carnivore, you're going to get a different profile. Uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's the diet that you choose to eat is going to determine which nutrients are most likely to be deficient. The more you restrict, the more likely you are to be deficient in nutrients. Like take someone who's doing a vegan keto diet. Well, they just took all the vulnerabilities of vegan and combined them with all the vulnerabilities of keto and they cut out, you know, uh, so many foods from their plate that there's not much left. They have a, it's, you know, it's like a retirement account that only has real estate in it. Uh, you know, you're like, maybe it'll grow at the rate that you want, but you might lose all your money. Um, and so either way, no matter what dietary camp you're in, it's there are there are just there are two rules that I think are super important. One is your nutritional needs are not mine. Mine are not yours, and mine aren't what they were ten years ago. Yours aren't aren't what they're gonna be in ten years. So to put those in more general terms, everyone's a little different and everyone changes over time. And if everyone's a little different and everyone changes over time, you can't make a simple rule like everyone who's paleo needs more molybdenum or everyone who's vegan needs more zinc. It really is just, you know, those are the first things that you should look at if you're vegan or if you're paleo, but at the end of the day, you're a unique individual and your unique needs change over time. And so you really want a way of, you you know, you might feel great, but if you don't feel perfect, then you really need a, a more systematic way of approaching how to determine what you need to work on rather than making assumptions based on what are the most common deficiencies in the general population or what are the most common deficiencies within the dietary group that I've chosen to belong to? Um, amazing answer. Um, you know, I, I think you made people think a little bit more about um, restricting their diets or not eating enough variety or um, being too judgmental about different kinds of foods people eat or, or don't eat or maybe sticking with the same food um, over and over again. You know, uh, especially in fitness community and people who are trying to lose weight or um, but there is this belief or thought that if you stick to the same kinds of food, then uh, it's going to be easier for you to manage your healthy eating habits or manage your weight. Uh, but it seems that, you know, from what I've learned and from what you've just said, it's not really a great long-term strategy to stick to the same kinds of food that um, might, at the end of the day, create some deficiencies that can cause real health problems. Well, I, I think that there are there's are some uh, principles that we're jumbling up here that can be separated. So, um, to you know, one one is a matter of, of uh, consistency, and one is a matter of lack of diversity. So you could you could eat 120 foods and eat them in the same pattern, the same ratio, and the same frequency 
and, and everything. Like you could have a highly consistent diet of those 120 foods and you're going to have a lot of diversity in your diet just because of the enormous number of foods you have. You also have a lot of day-to-day consistency because you set up a system where you have this exact rotation that, that, that goes on uh, endlessly, right? So there's the, the principle of, of consistency and the principle of diversity are, are separable and they're not necessarily in conflict. Now, 120 foods might be an exaggeration. The average person's eating far fewer foods than that. Um, but I think that the benefit of eating, you know, on the other hand, like it, it can be very helpful to diagnose a problematic food by going on an elimination diet. And an elimination diet is the opposite of diversity. But that's a temporary strategy to kind of to try to uncover uh, a, specific a specific food sensitivity, sensitivity by eliminating any, anything that might be a problem and then adding things back in one by one. A way to, a way to approach that from another angle is to eat the same way all the time and try removing one food at a time or figure out, uh, figure out like a selection of foods that you know work for you. Maybe there's 20 foods that you know you can tolerate and then eat the same thing all the time and then add things one at a time. Eating the same way all the time is a very good way to, to control for tinkering. So, you know, if I eat the same thing day in and day out and then I take a food that I never consume and add it to my diet, I'm able to see the effects of just adding that food a lot better than I would be able to if I was constantly eating different foods every day. To some degree, there is some conflict or at least some kind of trade-off or tug of war between the goal of eating, of diversifying and eating consistently, but they are different principles, so you can reconcile them. And and one of the benefits that I, one of the reasons I myself eat consistently is that, is for efficiency. I have to make a lot of decisions in my business and I don't want to be spending a lot of mental energy deciding what I'm going to eat on a particular day. And so... The way that I incorporate diversity and consistency is to eat batches of things that get rotated. So, for example, I I tend to I'll tend to um, like I'll make a roast chicken, and then until that roast chicken is done, I'm only eating roast chicken. And then maybe the next thing I eat is beef, but until that beef is done, I'm only eating the beef. Then I'll eat fish, but until that fish is done, I'm only eating the fish. So I might go a week at a time or more eating a, a, you know, the same basic protein on a day-to-day basis. And then I'll have mixed legumes and mixed vegetables. In the mixed vegetables, I might have five or six different vegetables that go into the Instapot. And then I have a batch of those vegetables that it might take me two or three days to get to. But then it's some other batch of five or six different vegetables that go in the Instapot. And so there's constant diversity programmed into the the rotation, mm-hmm. but the pattern is actually like I'm never waking up and deciding what I'm going to cook that day unless I'm doing it for fun. If I'm eating for the purpose of just, you know, having breakfast and being ready to work, then there's just, I'm just going to go into the fridge and I'm going to take out, you know, the same three things from the same Pyrex dishes mm-hmm. that, that store each component of my meal. And it's, including a diversity of vegetables in each batch and making the rotation is where the diversity plays into my diet. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, I do the same thing, actually. I just, I have this, what I like to call meal template. So protein, 
some vegetables, you know, fiber, rich foods, basically, uh, and then healthy fats. And, you know, sometimes they kind of combined in one food groups, uh, fats and proteins, for example, sometimes they're in different food groups. But yeah, it's a lot of vegetables, some sort of fatty protein. And that's basically how my meals go. Um, and, and then, yeah, I add variety also, you know, locally or seasonally or whatever is available and just always trying to incorporate different foods in that meal template or meal formula. Um, Chris, what about supplements? Um, well, first of all, do you think that supplements are as uh, potent and effective as real food? And then the second part of the question is, do you think there are some supplements that everyone should consider taking or, or um, and what do you take on a regular basis, if anything? I think supplements are called supplements because they're supplements and they're not replacements for a good diet. And I, you know, so, but by, by nature being called supplements, they mean you go to a good diet first and then you supplement that good diet with supplements. I, I don't think that um, the reason that we should put food first is because the nutrients and supplements don't work. There are some examples where the typical vitamin or mineral in a supplement is not the same as what you get from food and is inferior. Um, but that's, but that's not true as a universal rule. So, uh, as a couple examples, vitamin B6 in supplements is quite well, it depends on the supplement. So um, a lot of cheap supplements have pyridoxine, which is, which you do get from plants, but the pyr, uh, the pyridoxal 5-phosphate supplements are higher quality and pyridoxal is what you get from animal foods. Vitamin B5 is actually in uh, 85% of the vitamin B5 in food is in a form that you cannot get in any supplement and I have reasons to believe is superior. So I think vitamin B5 is one case where food is just straightforwardly better than what's in the supplement. Copper, almost all copper supplements, uh, almost all of them are in a different uh, different form than the copper in food. And there's not a lot of good data on it, but there are good reasons to think that the copper in food is superior, um, both from a, a perspective of being more effective and from a perspective of being less likely to cause harm. Um, so those examples do exist, but there, you know, there are just as many other examples like retinal palmitate is what's in a typical supplement for vitamin A, and that is what is the predominant form in liver. Uh, vitamin D3 is in what is in the typical supplement nowadays. Um, that is what you make from the sun, and it's what you get when you eat egg yolks and um, and fatty fish. Uh, vitamin C is ascorbic acid. That's usually what's in a supplement. That's you know the 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 only form that's out there. So it's kind of a mix. Probably two thirds to three quarters of the forms and supplements are are um, at least decent or close to ideal, but at least uh, a third of them are ones where I usually don't like what's in the supplement. Um, but that's, so that is a reason to go to food first, but it's not the major reason. The major reason is that it is, um, foods are so complex, they're providing a lot of things that we don't really understand. And if you look at the history of nutrition science, a lot of the 
nutri- nutrients that became known as essential nutrients became known because we assumed that they didn't do anything, and then we designed uh, diets that, for example, total parenteral nutrition is is what someone receives when they're in the hospital for a long period of time and they can't eat. They just inject the person with with everything that they need. Um, or infant formula is, you know, the infant can't form milk, so we'll just make synthetic milk and add what we think is needed for it. Uh, many of the nutrients that we know to be essential were a result of not putting them in total parenteral nutrition or not putting them in infant formula and then realizing that it was causing serious damage to not have them there. So, for example, choline is needed to prevent fatty liver, and we only know that because everyone on total parenteral nutrition got fatty liver, and then it went away when they started adding choline to it. Um, D, uh, DHA and arachidonic acid, they didn't used to add them to infant formula, and then they realized that that was hurting the infant's growth. And so they started adding them into the, into the infant formula. Um, omega-3 fatty acids. For a, while, um, for a while, no one thought the omega-6 fatty acids were essential. And then there were laboratory experiments showing they were essential in, in rats. People questioned whether they were essential in humans until they started saying that uh, some people were getting eczema from total parental nutrition because uh, there was no omega-6 fats. So they started adding omega-6 fats into the total parental nutrition. And um, what happens when you add only omega-6 but not omega-3 is that you cause a deficiency of the omega-3. So only once they started adding omega-6 to total parental nutrition did this poor girl who was uh, six years old, she had an abdominal gunshot wound and she was on total parental nutrition for over six months. And she developed severe neurological problems that were causing double vision, pain and tingling, uh, personality changes, just complete breakdown neurologically. And as soon as they added omega-3 fatty acids to the, to the total parental nutrition, uh, suddenly all those problems disappeared. And so if you look at that history, it's sort of like every time that we assume that we know everything you need, then we screw something up big time. And we realize what we screwed up and we change, we revise what we said or is everything that you need. And if you look at, at like animal lab rats, they did the same thing to the lab rats. So um, back in the day, like early 20th century, they used to feed lab rats food. They'd feed them cereal grain based diets. But then they said, look, we want to standardize these diets better because we want to be able to know like. Um, we want to be able to compare this lab to that lab if they found that some given toxin has a threshold to cause cancer at whatever percentage of the diet. We want to be able to know that these rats were all getting the same exact thing for all the different things behind the scenes that might be impacting that toxicity. And so they started using chemically defined diets and say, okay, a lab rat's needs are, are this. We're just going to feed this. Then all of a sudden, the lab rats started getting fatty liver disease. The start, lab rats started getting clotting disorders. Lab rats started getting more vulnerable to toxins than they were before. And then they said, hold on a second. We, uh, we screwed this up. Let's increase the vitamin K. Let's increase the choline. Let's decrease the, the sugar. And then they still found the rats were getting all kinds of problems. So they, then they said, you know what? Uh, maybe these rats need these trace elements that there's no evidence that they're needed but they might be needed, so who knows? So let's just put them in there. And so they did that. 
But even now, lab rat diets are still deficient in fiber. And one of the things that you can see is that when people show that like a high fat diet is really bad for the lab animal, they just add fiber to the diet and then all of a sudden the harm goes away. So there's there are still things where the chemically defined diet lags behind what's in food and you just realize that component and you add it in and suddenly it changes everything. It's that re that's the reason why we should go to food first. It's because there's thousands of things in food that are not in a multivitamin and we are really running ahead of ourselves if we're going to claim that we know everything that there is in that food that is important so we're just going to replicate it in a capsule. That's the problem. Uh, but there are still reasons to supplement and that is that it goes back to that principle that I said before that my needs are not your needs. Mine aren't what they used to be. Yours aren't what they're going to be in the future. We're all different. We all change over time. Your diet might not be enough to provide you with everything you need. And that's especially true if you have digestive problems where you're not absorbing certain nutrients from your food or there's just things that change about your – like take iron as an example. So uh, I mentioned before iron is considered an under-consumed nutrient for adolescent and premenopausal women. That's because adolescent women are, are growing real fast and all premenopausal women are losing iron in the blood that they lose when they menstruate. But if you – if you look at the requirements of a woman for iron, they can be radically different between a woman with average menstrual flow and a woman with heavy menstrual flow. So the average woman requires 8 milligrams of iron from food. If you have a good diet, that's pretty reasonable to achieve with, with a very good diet. But some women um, require as much as 18 milligrams per day of iron because of the iron that they lose during heavy menstrual losses. And it's almost completely it's, – it's like you might, it's so impossible that you might as well just say it's completely impossible for a woman to get that from food. Like you could do it, but almost no woman would do it because you would have to completely design your diet around getting iron. Like it would have to be the sole concern for you to be able to get 18 milligrams a day of iron con consistently um, and especially in a highly absor absorbable way. So – uh, I actually get – I personally get a lot more iron than than that because I eat a lot of legumes and a lot of leafy greens, a lot more than most people do. So my iron intake is actually really high, but the iron in plant foods is not that absorbable compared to the iron in animal foods. So like if, if – I think a woman with a very heavy menstrual flow, it's very possible that she wouldn't be able to reverse – the anemia that might accompany that without iron supplements unless she's eating very heavily among red meat, organ meats, and shellfish. And most women don't eat that way. Okay. <laughs> a lot of information about uh, supplements. Uh, uh, the oh, you, uh, you asked me what I take. Yeah. Do you want me to answer that? Because yeah. I didn't answer that at all. I just, I just realized, realized that. that. Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, so what I take tends to vary um, – to vary a lot over time and I'm always experimenting with something new. And so right now I'm experimenting with a supplement called beta alanine, which increases carnosine inside your muscles, which acts as a pH buffer. And I'm doing that because I have some reasons to think that, um, I, I generate, uh, it would take a long time to explain, but I, I have some things, um, 
some uh, like quasi twitching symptoms that I get and some muscular weakness that I like to work on. And the beta alanine seems to be helping. I'm also going to try some transdermal carnosine when I when my order for that comes in. I uh, think that's what I'm experimenting with. The things that I'm taking regularly right now are apart from some a protocol I'm doing for H. pylori, which is a temporary thing. Um, the things that are really in my regular rotation are vitamin A, vitamin D, and vitamin K2, and a mixed tocopherol, tocotrienol, vitamin E supplement. And I take those because I seem to have a very high need for vitamin A and for vitamin K2, um, but I'm a little afraid of just taking... Uh, so any any fat-soluble vitamin can cause deficiencies of other fat-soluble vitamins. And so I'm taking D and E mostly to balance the A and K that I'm taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see, am I taking anything else? I'm taking a few other things, but um, uh, they're more... They're more recent additions and kind of like, um, okay, so I'm taking uh, pyridoxal 5-phosphate right now, and I'm taking that because um, it seems to be really helpful with that twitching thing that I was talking about before. And so I actually want to see if um, if generating more acid in my muscles is a root cause of that, if I can address it in a better way with the beta alanine or the transdermal carnosine. If I can, I will probably reduce my B6. And I'm supplementing with molybdenum and folate right now, and that's mostly because I'm eating a low FODMAP diet for my digestion, and uh, that means I'm not eating beans very often, and beans are an important source of folate and molybdenum for me. Um. I was going to say something about supplements. You know, yeah, uh, a lot of people, you know, ask me actually, um, how did, you know, cavemen, uh, you know, survived without having um, this knowledge of all these vitamins and minerals and different nutrients without having to plan their diet all that well. And um, I usually like to remind people that probably cavemen didn't live that long as we do. <laughs> and, uh, they didn't have to figure out that before they were, I don't know, chased and killed by lions. Um, just um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a, a fair statement because although the life expect the average life expectancy of hunter gatherers is thought to be in the thirties, uh, in the thirties ish. That doesn't mean that most people die by the time they're in their 30s. That's the average life expectancy driven by a high infant mortality rate. Um, so I think it's definitely the case that a lot of uh, a lot of hunter gatherers lived till they were in their 70s or 80s. Um, but but uh, I I think it's I think it's a wrong assumption that they did live fine without knowing these things. I think if you look at, um, so one of the, one of the, one of the works that was really influential for me was Weston Price's book, nutrition and physical degeneration. And one of the things that he did when he was, uh, he, he was a pioneer in nutritional anthropology. One of the things he, he did was ask people why they ate the foods that they did in these hunter gatherer societies and their reasoning was always 
that they knew the negative consequences of not eating those foods. So, for example, when he asked um, when he asked the natives of the Arctic how they got their how they prevented scurvy, they said that scurvy is a white man's disease. And uh, he said, he said, what do you mean? And uh, he said, um, just white men get scurvy because they uh, they don't they never ask us how to prevent it. And so he said, oh, how do you prevent it? And they said, we uh, when we kill a moose, we take this little ball of fat above the kidney, which which isn't a ball of fat; it's the adrenal gland. And they cut it up into little pieces, and they give one piece to every little big little Indian and every big Indian in the tribe. And so. It turns out that the adrenal gland is the highest source of vitamin C in the body, the possible exception of the pituitary gland. And, you know, did they know what vitamin C was? No. Did they know how many milligrams of vitamin C they needed a day? No. Did they know the pathophysiology of scurvy? No. But they knew about this thing that causes your gums to bleed and causes bleeding inside the mouth and causes all the other symptoms of scurvy. And they knew that if they didn't eat the adrenal gland of the moose, which just happens to be rich in vitamin C, they would get scurvy. Um, they had means of preventing type 1 diabetes. So obviously type 1 diabetes happened to them. So I think a better perspective, I think it's really, really wrong to believe that cavemen just did whatever the hell they wanted and they were in perfect health. I think cavemen, cavemen were constantly running into problems that they had to solve and they accumulated. Um, it's, it's sort of like uh, why, you know, we, we drive cars. Well, how did cavemen get around if they didn't invent wheels? Well, like someone invented the wheel at some point because they had the problem of not being able to get around, right? Like every the things that we have are an accumulation of knowledge driven by having had problems for entire, the entirety of human existence and having built up solutions upon the new problems that old solutions create. Um, and so, you know, cavemen were getting diseases and didn't want diseases and were figuring out how to prevent or treat those diseases. And that's why, um, that's how, that's how hunter gatherers came to have a body of knowledge of what they should eat. Yeah, uh, yeah, I never really thought about that, you know, that deeply and in that way. So thank you for sharing. Uh, you probably thought a lot about it or at least a reasonable amount. <laughs> of time. Oh, I thought about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, thank you for sharing. Uh, so, Chris, uh, I'm mindful of your time and um would like to <laughs> let you go because I know you have a busy day and things to do. Um, so as a final thought or final words, um, what would you like to maybe tell our listeners or advise our listeners to, to do more often or regularly to improve their nutrition and their health and their well-being? Um, any advice that I, you think um, you know most of the people should focus on? I think the most universally applicable thing to think about is to take a step back from what you're doing and review what you do on all those fronts and why you do them and give yourself a little distance, a little break from your routine to really appreciate the rationales behind what you do, what you do. And I think having a little distance and actually thinking through those things can help you um, find things that are missing. You may start to realize, oh, why am I not doing this thing? Or, 
oh, maybe me doing this all the time is what's causing this. And I think a lot of us have the tendency, I think most of us have the tendency to really operate on autopilot where the reason that we're doing everything is because that's what we were doing last week and that's what we're doing the week before and that's what we're doing the week before. And if we search back for why we're doing any of those things, ultimately it probably traces back to we saw someone else was doing those things. And so to be able to kind of take some time off to review what you do and why you do it can be the most powerful tool that can lead you to uh, make improvements in your life at any stage of the game. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. You know, I'm a huge fan of all sorts of experiments and self-reflection uh, after or during those uh, experiments. Uh, and then reorganizing or redesigning yourself and um, your life and your lifestyle to produce different results that you usually would get. So, yeah, it's very powerful practice. Um, thank you for sharing it and um, advising it to our listeners. And uh, where, uh, Chris, uh, listeners could go or online um, to learn more about your work and what maybe what part of your work or what you do um, you're really excited about and where people can learn more about it and follow you, you know, everything you do. People can find me at chrismasterjohnphd.com or at chrismasterjohn on most social media. I'm most active on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the two big things that I'd like to push people, especially people who need an introduction to my work, are uh, I have a free class called Vitamins and Minerals 101. This is a class where uh, there's a one lesson each day on each nutrient. Mm -hmm. And it, um, it basically, I think it's really designed for the beginner who doesn't have a background in nutrition and doesn't have a science background. And I would, I would see it really as the way to go from beginner level to intermediate level. I think what's the basic requirement is that someone be curious enough about nutrition to actually want to know what each nutrient does. Um, and, it covers, for example, there's a lesson on, the first lesson's on vitamin A. What is vitamin A? What kind of foods do you get it from? Why is it important? Why do you need it? Uh, how would you design your diet to get enough vitamin A? How would you know if you had too much? Um, what would you do about that? When should you think about supplementing? And that's the pattern that goes on for each nutrient. And that's a free class. Uh, I also have a system for managing nutritional status called Testing Nutritional Status, the Ultimate Cheat Sheet. So we said before that we want to lay down some basic foundational rules that should be good for most people, that when you deviate from those basic rules, you introduce certain specific vulnerabilities like a vegan person or a keto person or a paleo person or a carnivore might get certain, um, you know, certain vulnerabilities as a result of the dietary pattern that they follow. But at the end of the day, everyone's needs are different and people's needs change over time. And so if you want to assess your nutritional needs, you really need a systematic approach to determine what's missing for you and what might be need to change for you. And so testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet is a comprehensive system for managing nutritional status that basically walks you through first understanding what your resources are. Some people have limited time. Some people have limited money. Some people have enough of all time and money that they're going to invest in their approach. And so it make, has you pick a comprehensive approach, a time-saving approach or a cost-saving approach approach based on 
um, your, the resources you have available to you, and then it holds your hand and walks you through data collection from lab testing, from dietary analysis, from signs and symptoms, and then it walks you through the data interpretation and says, you know, if this is off, read this section, if this is off, read this section, helps you determine what imbalance, deficiency, or toxicity might be a problem for you, what you should do about it, helps you develop an action plan, and then helps you develop a way to make sure that action plan is working. And so that's, uh, that is a, um, a comprehensive system. It's uh, sold at, for $30 as a Kindle book, a, a PDF, or an iBook. And um, for your listeners, I'll give 20% off and we'll just, we can put a link in the show notes to get that as well. Yeah, that would be cool. Uh, very useful resource. Um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will take advantage of this. Um, so we'll, we'll link all of these in the show notes and um, share the links and discounts with our listeners. So thank you, Chris, again for um joining me for this episode of food school podcast and thank you for all the amazing uh advice really uh deep and thoughtful um that i'm sure again will help a lot of listeners listeners to uh improve their health and well-being um thank you really you're welcome thank, thank you so much for having me on that's great thank you